Welcome to the 250th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion of emergency management in the COVID-19 pandemic with Jeff Schlegelmilch and Samantha Montano. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, March 31st, 2021, there are 2,805,972 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States has climbed to 550,998. In Brazil, 317,646 people have died of COVID-19, and in India, the latest update is 162,468 deaths from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, Fraud, Fears, and Messy Data Stall FEMA Program for COVID Victims. This was published February 25th, 2021 in Politico by Aaron Banco. The federal government wants to help Americans pay for their families' COVID-19-related funerals if it can figure out how to keep the scam artists at bay. The Federal Emergency Management Agency is planning a $2 billion pandemic funeral assistance program using money set aside in the $2.3 trillion spending package signed in December, but progress has stalled over concerns within the agency that the program is vulnerable to widespread fraud, according to two senior officials with direct knowledge of the situation. FEMA has for decades helped Americans cover unexpected and uninsured expenses incurred when their family members die as a result of major disasters like hurricanes or earthquakes or in other emergency settings. But with more than 550,000 people dead so far, the pandemic funeral program is poised to be the largest the agency has ever mounted. It may also be the messiest. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which collects mortality data on the pandemic, has advised FEMA that for logistical and regulatory reasons, CDC cannot verify whether individual deaths are COVID-related. Instead, the disaster agency will need to lean on overburdened state health agencies and medical institutions to cross-reference federal data with death certificates. Now, FEMA is scrambling to find safeguards that would prevent fraudsters from forging death certificates in an attempt to collect thousands of dollars for funerals that either, have, that either never happened or were for people who died from another cause. The agency is still working on defining who will be able to apply for reimbursement, but officials said the program will be similar to the one implemented after Hurricane Katrina. Eligible funeral expenses will include the purchase of caskets, mortuary services, transportation of the dead, burial costs, burial plots, cremation. The funding does not cover costs of funerals incurred during 2021, a spokesperson said. 
Normally, state and federal officials at FEMA field offices review applicants' documentation before they approve the payout. Those documents include death certificates, proof that the applicant is the dead person's next of kin, and confirmation that funeral expenses were not paid for through other resources, such as Veterans Affairs benefits. FEMA is considering implementing additional measures to authenticate the documents they receive from families participating in the COVID program. FEMA officials asked the CDC for guidance on whether it could help match death certificates with mortality data collected by the federal government. The CDC officials said state health agencies would have to take on the task, in part because they have the most accurate and comprehensive data on deaths in their jurisdictions. In addition, state medical examiners, offices, and coroners already help FEMA in disaster-related funeral reimbursement situations by identifying whether someone died as a result of a given disaster or for some other unrelated reason. The biggest challenge for FEMA is that all 50 states have different ways for accounting for deaths, said Craig Fugate, the FEMA administrator during the Obama administration. States have to certify that the death is disaster-specific. It could be an indirect impact, like with the Texas winter storm disaster and the carbon monoxide poisoning. As long as the medical examiner notes it was related to the event, then everything is okay. The bigger challenge with COVID is identifying if COVID was the cause of death, even if you had a pre-existing condition, Fugate said. Counting the dead is complicated, and the surge in deaths from the virus has muddied the process. While states have the most up-to-date death counts, they are still experiencing significant delays in tallying who has died from the virus. They're even further behind in reporting that information to the CDC. Agency officials say they're still waiting on states to submit COVID-19 death reports from the 2020 holiday season. FEMA also will likely face issues when families submit for reimbursement but present death certificates or other medical information that do not support the claim that a person died as a result of COVID. States submit death data to the CDC through two parallel tracking systems. One relies on codes used on death certificates. The program scans for words like COVID-19 to determine the cause of death for each individual. Physicians are required to list COVID-19 on the death certificate in order for someone to be counted in the state and federal tracking systems as having died of the virus. But not every COVID-19 death has been documented, particularly those that happened during the early days of the pandemic. When the virus first emerged in the United States, testing was limited and doctors were unclear exactly why their patients were dying. As the virus spread more rapidly, physicians learned to better identify symptoms of COVID-19, but did not always list the virus on the death certificate. In other situations, hospitals used the term coronavirus rather than COVID-19 on the certificates, and the CDC did not count those people as having died of the virus. Since then, the CDC has worked with states to investigate those deaths and recount them properly. Senior FEMA official said the agency will be working with a contractor and training staff to help administer the funeral reimbursement program. A federal contract reviewed by Politico shows FEMA's Community Survivor Assistance Section was awarded $202 million, has awarded $202 million to General Dynamics Information Technology, a major contractor for the Department of Homeland Security and the Pentagon, to set up a contact center to provide funeral service assistance to family members of those who've died from COVID-19. The contract awarded in February is for two years of work. Okay, I'm gonna to turn to my conversation for today. 
And for the 250th episode, I'm really happy to have Jeff Schlegel-Milch and to also bring Samantha Montano back to COVID calls. Let me introduce them to you. Samantha Montano is an assistant professor of emergency management at Massachusetts Maritime Academy. Her forthcoming book, Disasterology, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Climate Crisis, comes out this August. She is also author of the recent essay, Not All Disasters Are Disasters, Pandemic Categorization and Its Consequences, which she co-authored with Amantha Savitt and appears in the SSRC website package, The Disaster Studies um, uh, Essays. Jeff Schlegel-Milch is a research scholar and the director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University's Earth Institute. He oversees projects related to the practice and policy of disaster preparedness, including the multi-award winning Resilient Children Resilient Communities Initiative. Prior to his work at Columbia, he was the manager for the international and non-healthcare business sector for the Yale New Haven Health System Center for Emergency Preparedness and Disaster Response. He was previously an epidemiologist and emergency planner for the Boston Public Health Commission. He's also the author of Rethinking Readiness, a brief guide to 21st century mega disasters, which was published by Columbia University Press. Jeff Schlegelmelch and Samantha Montano, thanks a lot for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thanks for having us. So I'd like to start the way I generally do, just to find out where you're calling in from, what the pandemic situation is there, maybe what the vaccination system is looking like there. Samantha, can I ask you that first, please? Sure. I am in southern Maine right now. Things are going pretty okay here. The vaccine rollout has been a bit slow, but uh, eligibility opens up to everyone at the end of April. So um, that is a positive sign. Um, still a bit apprehensive about the other variants and tourism this summer, but kind of cautiously optimistic. And in terms of where you're teaching at the Maritime Academy, what's happening there? Um, Massachusetts is seeing a spike last time I saw in cases. Um, vaccine is rollout is kind of ongoing. I don't haven't heard any major problems, but who knows? Jeff, same question to you, where you're calling in from and how's it looking there? Yeah, so I, I'm calling from my home in uh, Connecticut and uh, just check out the window. Yep, uh, pandemic's still going on. Um, yeah, um, and actually the vaccine rollout in Connecticut, um, they've been near the top of the top of the pile in terms of uh, um, vaccine per capita. And uh, it opens up tomorrow to all adults or everyone 16 and over because um, the Pfizer vaccine, of course, is um, approved for, for kids 16 and up. And um, New York City, where I'm normally based uh, during work hours uh, in non-pandemic times, has had a little bit bumpier of a road of the, the rollout. I believe the city just opened up like in the last day or two to all adults for uh, for a vaccine. So there's definitely this big push getting it out. But um, uh, yeah, a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's kind of masked by, uh, similar to what uh, Samantha said, an increase in cases that we're seeing throughout the Northeast right now and um, uh, unclear of what those causes are and some, what I would argue are some premature lifting of restrictions that are also probably have something to do with this. Well, I have a lot of questions here to ask you both about disaster preparedness and emergency management. And it's a, uh, it's a sort of embarrassment of riches to have you both together in the same call. But I'm going to start with a, a pretty general question, which is just to see how you're evaluating, how you're thinking about 
um, evaluating emergency management and disaster preparedness over the last year in this in this pandemic. Let's start anywhere you want to start, but I think we should probably touch on federal, state, local, tribal um, areas, really how it's worked across the country. Samantha, let me start with you on this and take any part of it you want to, but we'll take our time to work through it carefully. Sure. Um, so I think kind of bird's eye view, looking at the federal response over the past year, I think it's useful to break it up between the two administrations. I think the assessment of um, kind of FEMA's role, but this response more broadly during the Trump administration was, you know, marked by a failure to use existing emergency management infrastructure. Um, you know, the kind of persistent improvisation that was kind of occurring within their, you know, well, if they had one, a national strategy, there was a lot of kind of goalposts changing or their, you know, what the goals were, weren't really clear, poor coordination, poor communication, severe breakdown in, in trust. I think those are all pretty well established at this point. Um, I think the Biden administration coming in, um, especially, you know, coming in and taking over in the midst of a response is no small task. Um, so I, I think that they've done a, a lot of things well in terms of coming in, creating plans, um, you know, improvising where is necessary as new information becomes available, being flexible with changing dates and whatnot, um, much clearer communication in comparison, much clearer goal setting and prioritization of needs in comparison. Um, but, you know, still, um, <laughs> you know, challenges uh, as we go. Thanks for starting us off. Jeff, let me just ask you the same question. Yeah, it's, um, I, I mean, I certainly echo all, all of the comments made absolutely 100%. Um, you know, I, I think part of this too is like, what is the role of emergency management in a pandemic? And it's been one of these things that, you know, even, even a lot of the preparedness documentation that, that FEMA had put out and that emergency managers had worked on had been under the assumption of an emergency declaration, not a major disaster declaration, which unlocks totally different realm of, of resources. Um, there was some odd just kind of public relations thing going on under the last administration when FEMA was involved. Um, maybe I'll set those aside for the moment, but just to say that, you know, I think in, in terms of logistics and getting things from point A to point B and helping to coordinate things, I think this is where emergency management usually shines and usually does pretty well with. Um, the broader challenges have been less around the the individuals working in the confines of, of what they're tasked to do and more so with the definition of what they're tasked to do and how that's being handled by uh, political appointees and policy officials. But it does open up like this larger question of public health preparedness and emergency management have often been two distinctly different fields. Uh, they're funded through different verticals between the state, local, and federal government. They have different expertise. We've obviously seen a different world in terms of how they've been deployed. So I, I think working as designed, they've been one of the spots that have probably functioned a little bit better um, and, and more consistent with what was expected of emergency management and is expected during a pandemic. But I think that there is a need to sort of step back and reflect on how do these different aspects of, of government interplay with each other and, and is there a better way, a more integrated way going forward? With the absence of a federal response that many people were looking for across many different sectors, I wonder if each of you might be willing to talk about things you saw at the state or at in the 
municipal level in emergency management last year that you thought were useful improvisations, um, interesting ways to cope. Uh, I think we learned a lot about federalism over this last year, maybe too much about federalism, but you know, as we try to make sense of what's happened and happening, pointing to those kind of examples to me, it seems like it's gonna be pretty important. Samantha, let me ask you that first. Yeah, I think that there were a lot, if not maybe all states that really struggled here. I don't really have the impression, and also I've now gone back to look at kind of state level emergency management plans. And I don't, my assessment is, I don't think state level emergency management agencies were ready to be put in the position of mm. having the governor really be leading the response to a pandemic. Um, that was not, I don't think that was kind of in planning assumptions. I don't think that was in the realm of what they were even really thinking they were going to need to be doing. Um, to Jeff's point, I think we saw this um, tension or, or just kind of confusion even between emergency management and public health replicated at that state and local level as people kind of tried to figure out what their job was within this broader response. Um, and then, you know, that being compounded by that lack of federal guidance, I think kind of just made the entire process really confusing for a lot of people in emergency management. Uh, at the local level, I, I think it, it's hard to say because it, it varies so much place to place. I think some local agencies have been really great and really active in the response kind of as we've gone through the year and they've been really flexible at meeting their community's needs as things come up and change. Um, I think some agencies have kind of gotten derailed in that process as uh, you know, kind of a, a new structure has emerged for how their community is going to be managing the pandemic as other disasters have happened and their attention has kind of had to be diverted. Um, and then I, I think there were some emergency management agencies that never really kind of found their footing in, in figuring out how to fit into that local response. Um, you know, this is one one area where I'm going to pull a card of we haven't done the research yet to really have a, a great sense looking across the country about, you know, where local emergency management agencies kind of landed in terms of effectiveness here. Jeff, same question to you on this. Yeah, you know, we've had the privilege of working with some uh, uh, emergency management agencies in a number of communities with uh, as part of our Resilient Children, Resilient Communities initiative. And, and I can say where they're, you know, really doing it right is where they're facilitating these cross-sector communications, you know, where they're, where they're bridging with public health, with the, uh, and as a part of the project that I'm leading, the, the, the child-serving infrastructure and serving as that convening forum, helping to identify issues. You know, at one point, too, uh, towards the start of hurricane season, we were doing some work to do some workshops, some interim after action reports for, with uh, some emergency management partners in some of these communities. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, we sort of humbly go in like, are, are we going to get in the way if we work with you? And they're like, no, 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 this is great. We need the, the recommendations because they were dealing with, uh, it was post the first wave of the pandemic, if we can call it waves, um, but also with hurricane season encroaching. So we needed to know what were the lessons that were learned, what could be implemented ahead of hurricane season, what could be implemented ahead of potentially another wave in the fall and what were the long-term. Um, and I got to say, it, it was really very, a, a wonderful experience working with, with partners who were so open to that and working so hard. And, and it just reminds me again and again that, you know, at the local level where the action is, they don't have any choice but to figure it out. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, these... Um, 
the, the agencies that are going into this, trying to embrace the whole community, trying to, to work through partnerships, you know, as dedicated civil servants, I think are doing an incredible job. Um, and, and to Samantha's point too, it's just, it's really a shame that that federal guidance and federal support was lacking. And that also a lot of the guidance that has come over the years has been driven by um, some compartmenting of disaster responsibilities, driven more by politics um, and even some legacies of the most recent incarnation of FEMA within the Department of Homeland Security that sort of got it separated from a lot of the healthcare and health and medical preparedness after some of the issues in Katrina. I know I just poked on a lot of can of worms to try and open up here, so maybe I'll stop there. I, I, I would usually save the question of whether or not FEMA should be in Homeland Security till the end, but since you since you um, turned on the can opener for that, Jeff, uh, let me just ask you straight out, was it are we seeing a, a problem here of FEMA being um, misaligned in the overall federal bureaucracy? So, and misaligned I, is a very careful way to say that. I mean, I'm yeah. being a little bit careful in how I ask that question. No, no, no. So I, I actually don't have the, so yeah, I'm gonna give a more complex answer than it probably deserves. In principle, yes. I mean, in principle, you have the Department of Homeland Security, which is primarily a law enforcement agency, and then you have a very, very different mission set, a very different skill set, um, that uh, very different practice of emergency management um, that just is not congruent with the Department of Homeland Security. Sometimes it works well. Sometimes the secretary steps back and lets FEMA do its thing, and other times it doesn't. The reason why I hesitate a little bit, and there are two reasons. One is that there's always a lot of trauma when you move agencies around, and we saw this mm -hmm. post 9-11 with the movement of FEMA, and I would argue that a lot of the failed response to Hurricane Katrina, Katrina was partly due to the trauma of moving our national emergency management agency around um, in such a caustic, politicized way. But the other is that I think there's an even bigger play here than where FEMA sits in the hierarchy. We have as many as 90 federal programs across as many as 20 different agencies that can all be activated by different mechanisms, different acts of Congress, different disaster declarations, and the survivors at the center are figuring this out. Our state and local agencies are at the center of figuring this out. Our, our emergency management systems that we're deploying for the 21st century were designed amidst 20th century disasters. So, um, so yes, I, I I agree in principle, but something as big as it sounds as big as that sounds also feels somewhat small in terms of what we need in terms of emergency management reform. Samantha, just to bring you on that, and anything you want to say to Jeff on that to that point, and and maybe one um, case we can look at, which I think was confusing to a lot of people, was just that the management of the pandemic seemed to start with health and human services. And just, I think, as people were starting to understand the organization chart and who's involved there and, and the names were popping up in the news and accountability was starting, uh, it got handed off to FEMA. And I think there was a lot of confusion about that in the press and I think out there um, among the public. And then that sort of changed too. I mean, even in the midst of the pandemic, the sort of um, control of the disaster seemed to shift. I think it speaks a bit to Jeff's um, point there. What do you think, Samantha? Yeah, I, I mean, I think this has been something that's been really confusing for people throughout the past year. Um, I obviously, I, well, you guys know I fall in the camp of yes, absolutely take FEMA out of DHS, but also completely agree with Jeff as that is one piece of much broader uh, reform that's needed as we look across all of these agencies that are involved. Um, I, I think the pandemic also just 
kind of underscores what disaster researchers and emergency management experts have been saying for the past 20 years, which is that, yeah, look, terrorism is part of what FEMA does, but it is one small part. And to have the agency put under this one you know, department that is so focused on this one issue, it, it leaves out all of these other pieces, right? It disconnects them from HHS, which obviously there's an important connection here too. And so I just think it, you know, just kind of underscores this, um, you know, this problem of where FEMA is located. Um, taking it out, I think, helps to solve some of that problem. But also, as Jeff said, I don't think that we need to be taking FEMA out of DHS without having an actual plan for how this is going to work and how this is going to work across all these other agencies. And of course, given the diffuse nature of climate change, it makes sense to be having this conversation, I think, in relationship to those conversations about how we're integrating climate change into all of the federal agencies. But again, I have some hesitancy there about kind of only siloing FEMA away with uh, mm. some new kind of climate agency or something, right? Because it, it again, it then detaches it from those other, those other hazard areas. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking today about emergency management and the pandemic with Samantha Montano and Jeff Schlegelmilch. Samantha, I want to stay with you on uh, something that Jeff mentioned a minute ago um, about just the problem in the pandemic of, of talking about it, categorization of it. Is it an emergency? Is it a disaster, a major disaster? And you wrote um, with your co-author, Amantha Savitt, for the Social Science Research Council, you wrote a piece in which you really talked about this problem. I'm just going to quote um, from that. So you talk, You said in March, and this is last March, questions were raised about whether the Stafford Act could be invoked for the pandemic because viruses were not explicitly written into the language of the law. And you go on to say this instance shows the precarity on which the entire governmental emergency management system rests, that a misrepresentation or an overly stringent reading of the Stafford Act could mean it's not used in the midst of the greatest domestic crisis in living memory. So uh, you don't have to explain the whole thing line and verse, but what is the Stafford Act in this sense? What does it, what does it mean? And why were you concerned about that problem of categorization? Sure. So the Stafford Act is kind of the cornerstone of federal emergency management policy. Um, and within the Stafford Act, it dictates the power to declare emergencies and disasters. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, or back in March, there were conversations <laughs> about whether or not the Stafford Act could be evoked because, as I said, it didn't specifically mention pandemics in it. Um, Kamala Harris at the time wrote a bill that never made its way through Congress, but wrote a bill adding the word pandemic to the Stafford Act to try and get at this issue. Um, ultimately, it was decided that it was all-encompassing and that they could use the Stafford Act to respond. But there were 
many days there where there was a question of whether or not that was going to happen. And if the Stafford Act wasn't used, then to what extent would FEMA be involved? There, you know, it would mean that all of the money sitting in the disaster relief fund just sat there and wasn't used. It would mean that programs within FEMA that we have to address these kinds of issues go unused. Um, so again, going back to this idea that there was this like existing emergency management infrastructure that wasn't being utilized in a way that it of course was absolutely intended to be utilized. Um, and so there have been as recently as at uh, Deanne Criswell's confirmation hearing last week, there have been questions from senators from Congress about potentially amending the Stafford Act to make clear kind of which hazards, which types of events are fully covered under the Stafford Act. Um, that is maybe like a whole nother conversation. Um, but to bring it back to the article that Amanda and I wrote, you know, this is getting at this bigger issue of the language that we use to describe these events that are happening, right? Is, um, you know, is something like the, you know, water crisis in, in Jackson, Mississippi, a disaster? Is that something else? Is that something that, you know, we should be using, the Stafford Act should be using emergency management for? Is the pandemic something that emergency management should be involved in that we should be using these programs for? Or is this something that is just HHS? So there's these bigger, you know, questions that are, are very closely tied to the language that we employ that, um, that kind of get pulled into these broader policy conversations. And, uh, you know, I know everybody wants a, a bullet pointed list of emergency management policy reforms, but I, I think we're still in, in many ways at a, at a point of kind of doing that, um, that more theoretical thinking and, and trying to sort out the relationships between all of these different areas. I was just going to add in, yeah, pandemics add this other sort of tricky component to it as well, too, because it's um, a lot of times your your window for intervention is before the damage begins to occur. And so we saw this a lot with Ebola and with Zika and sort of our addiction to emergency supplemental appropriations. Uh, the There's not a viable public health emergency fund. Uh, so part of the reason the Stafford Act became so important for the pandemic is because there's not a public health equivalent. Um, there is a, an account that was set up in the 80s. I believe they adjusted some language to sort of set it up for 21st century disasters in the latest pandemic and all hazards preparedness reauthorization, but there's still no money in it. Um, and uh, so, so there's a lot of thinking and work that needs to be done around there too. And I, I completely agree. There are some great congressional research service reports um, also pointing out that unless Congress updates the language in the Stafford Act, it is contestable. You can make the argument for or against for a major disaster declaration. The emergency declaration is a bit more fluid, but there's not as much, many resources behind that. So, um, but we also see this too in the um, the pandemic bonds that were really championed and put forward prior to the pandemic. And it was like, oh, this is a game changer. We now have financial instruments for this. Um, I'm not throwing shade through my sarcasm. I think they are a good idea, but they didn't work out very well because the triggers for activation of those bonds, you were too far behind by the time those resources got released for them to be useful. So pandemics in general create all sorts of different things that stretch the boundaries of how we're used to thinking about disasters and how we're used to legislating about disasters. I want to stay with this, Jeff, this, this problem of a pandemic preparedness within an emergency management mindset, because it strikes me that there are many activities um, that are very much encompassed by the kinds of system we have and, and training that we have for emergency management. Pre-positioning of PPE, for example, 
um, or you know nebulizers or many other you know things or even um, to deal with overflow in um, not just emergency rooms but also in in um, you know mortuaries and and dealing with you know very high death rates that were overwhelming those all seem like things that could be encompassed if not by the letter of the Stafford Act, certainly by the spirit of the Stafford Act. I wonder, again, like why we couldn't integrate more closely the tools and tricks of emergency management into pandemic preparedness. Why did we miss that so badly? Well, well, for, uh, on the one hand, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, the, the flexibility inherent with like a functional approach that emergency management takes is actually a really, really valuable way to deal with any kind of uncertainty. The, the time scales get a little warped when you're dealing with pandemics and, and the information comes across a little differently so they don't fit as neatly. But, um, and you know, when we hear about disasters, generally people like to consume it in the form of scenarios. Emergency managers do it by building blocks, functions. How do you approach this pre-positioning of supplies? I would say at the end of the day, all this comes down to every agency has authorizing legislation that lays out the vision for what it can and can't do. And um, post 9-11, I mean, it really predates 9-11, but, you know, talking in the post 9-11 world, you know, uh, who owns health and who owns emergency management? This is an artificial sort of creation that we've put in through our governance that we deal with health in one set of agencies and we deal with law enforcement and fire service and public safety in others. Um, and so there's always been tension where that Venn diagram overlaps. We saw it really come to a head um, with a lot of the efforts post 9-11 with who's going to own bioterrorism, who's mm. going to be at the forefront of that, um, some various power plays across the different agencies that were sort of resolved after Katrina. It was kind of like everybody back to their corners. <laughs> like FEMA, right, you do everything right, right. that's not public health, you know, and then and then right. uh, and, and then it was sort of like this detente for a while, and no one really wanted to go back into the into the room to figure it out on a on a legislated level. Um, but I think that this does show that you know you structure a government, you structure an organization to meet eighty percent of what you can figure out, but then you have to be able to manage the exceptions. It's not so easy um, when the pathways you're allowed to walk down, what you're allowed to preposition, when you're allowed to engage, and how you're allowed to engage is rooted in public law and in some cases the constitution. There's so many challenges here, I would assume, even if we could begin to bring those functions together a little bit. Samantha, you know, at the top I read this story about FEMA's attempt to try to provide funeral funds um, to families of victims of COVID and all of the many problems that that is raising, not to mention the primary one, which is who died of COVID and, and the fact that there's no single federal database for that. And CDC has said, to my knowledge so far, has said, we can't provide that service at this time. Can you speak to that? I mean, that's just maybe the tip of the iceberg of what FEMA is going to be facing here. Yeah, this is a, a tough one. Um, and, and this goes back to using the Stafford Act. Uh, when states started requesting disaster declarations, last or towards the end of last March, um, about half of the states requested all individual assistance programs, which included the pre-existing funeral assistance program. And um, the White House didn't authorize that program. And so um, uh, AOC Schumer had to go through Congress to get this funding and um, kind of pressure uh, White House and FEMA into using this funeral assistance program, which is has taken a year <laughs> to do. Um, and now at this point, of course, in some sense, this is uh, 
like too little too late, right? I we're already at the hopefully towards the end of this response. And um, FEMA is going to have to go back now and, and backtrack and find all of this data, find all of this information, find all of these people do a public education campaign that this is available to them. This is a, a really heavy lift to, to be able to do all of this. Um, and it's, I mean, there's going to be challenges, right? This isn't going to go smoothly, probably. Um, and, uh, you know, I suspect that there is an opportunity for FEMA to kind of be scapegoated here. But I think we need to look back and say, well, if this program had been activated a year ago, as, you know, people were saying it needed to be, we wouldn't be in this situation. So I think this is just kind of as a first issue, this is a really good example of how FEMA is being asked to kind of come in at the end here and try to make sense of this, try to fix this uh, in knowing that they don't necessarily have the the tools and resources to, to do that. Um, so that's, um, I think, maybe the the biggest issue here. The secondary issue is, of course, the, you know, being able to prove the, the cause of death. Um, this is uh, an issue after any disaster where funeral assistance uh, is used. Um, this was a, a problem after Maria. The, the way that uh, coroners across the country sign death certificates varies widely. Um, and again, FEMA as an agency isn't necessarily in a position to be able to do much about that. So um, I think uh, it, it'll be uh, frustrating, but interesting to see how they actually approach this. Jeff, let me bring you back in and talk a little bit about, you know, sticking with some of the challenges for FEMA and emergency management more generally. I think people are often a little surprised when they find out how small FEMA's staffing actually is um, and how much they rely on contractors. And so I want to sort of open that, but also sort of get into this issue of how we should be thinking about private emergency management um, consultants in this time, because I'm assuming that um, a lot of state and local uh, emergency management needs have been met through private um, consulting in one way or another at this time. And I'm sure a lot of businesses and health centers and various other kinds of entities, universities have relied didn't rely on FEMA for advice in the middle of the pandemic or HHS, they turned to whatever other sort of private information um, that they were paying for already or had to go out and contract in the middle of the disaster. So can we talk a little bit about that sort of public-private divide and how we should think about um, private emergency management consulting at this time? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I think, um, you know, two important names are uh, George Washington and Ronald Reagan. So, yeah. Uh, so, so to start it out, all out is that being in a federalist democracy, the federal government, I mean, it, thinking way, way back, right, there was this question, are we going to be one nation? Are we going to be 13 independent nations? And so the Constitution was really built around, you know, uh, um, states' rights. And so we have this this federalism where where the federal government often, you know, through the power of the purse and through a lot of other mechanisms, but in many cases, it's much bigger in uh, uh, the, the myth than in the actuality. And I think FEMA is an example of this, where the expectations of FEMA are just completely out of whack with what it's actually mandated and staffed and legislated and authorized to do. Um, and that dates way back to where, you know, disasters are, are handled locally, state managed, federally supported, or what, what is it? Locally executed, state managed, federally supported. Was that the, anyway, there's a, there's a, 
a branding that that um, so so I think that that yeah there's a huge mismatch between the expectations of FEMA and and what FEMA is actually authorized and staff to do. I mentioned Ronald Reagan around the 1980s is when the federal government it, it was happening before, um, but really really began to move towards privatization. And then you start to see government functions moving from being something where you're paying someone in an agency to write a plan to where you're paying someone in an agency to manage a contract of someone to write a plan. Um, and that has really cascaded across. It's amazing how many agencies out there um, have positions that are, are, are titled planners, but they actually manage the contract for the planners that are doing it. Uh, so there has been this steady privatization of of the work that that these agencies are doing that that's often invisible because folks see it as oh well, this is managed by FEMA when a lot of times if you're interacting with FEMA you may very well be interacting with a, a caseworker from General Dynamics or you know uh, uh, or a staffing agency that's come in to sort of handle this on a surge basis in some ways this is a good thing because disasters surge you can't simply you can't maintain the full time staff to handle the ebbs and flows sure. of disasters um, on the other hand it kind of creates a um, uh, sort of an ad hoc, a temporary, um, people complain a lot, well, I, it's a different person each week. And, and you know, so you're bringing in inherently relying on contractors and temporary employees. But I think that this is a real important story and a real important trend that isn't really out there that much is just how much of our emergency management, emergency planning is actually done through through, through consultants. Um, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, um, but it's, I'm not saying it's a good thing. <laughs> it's something we need to better understand. Um, and um, uh, what are the trade-offs in doing it that way? Because we're certainly experiencing them directly or indirectly. I mean, it strikes me one of the challenges with that is that if your emergency management system doesn't work well and it's managed publicly, you at least know where to go to seek redress for that, which is ultimately through a political system. Whereas when you're dealing with private sector firms, it's a lot more complicated to know exactly what do you do if you got bad advice or if your planning didn't work out. And this is kind of a technical question, but Jeff, just to stay with you on this, and then Samantha, I want to bring you in as well. Um, people do find that more and more of this emergency response is actually being handled by private companies. What can they do when it doesn't work out right? Yeah, so there's, uh, you know, there, there are liability issues in terms of this, who's ultimately responsible. Um, and, and so, I mean, I think the first step is we need a lot of transparency about this. And, and I should say, too, on at the community level, it's a mix. So, you know, some communities have a lot of staff and there's a lot of investment. They have resources for it. Others um, rely on and, and actually the way that the funding comes through is these are year to year grants. And so it's harder to hire someone for a 10 year position um, if you only know you have the funding for nine more months by the time it gets received and passed down to you. So it also structures itself to favor contractors. But I, I think it does bring up questions of accountability, longevity, um, who's going to be there for the long term for all of this. Um, and it starts with transparency and ultimately accountability for this, whether it's done by the private sector, uh, by a contractor or by a government employee, it's being funded through tax dollars. And there is a mechanism through that, through your elected officials and your vote at the ballot box. So I think that that's the ultimate incentive um, and mechanism for more information and to, to instigate change. Samantha, did you want to comment on anything we were just talking about? Um, I'll just add that I think with private contracting, this is a one area in particular within emergency management where I think our lack of research funding, the lack of investigative reporting dedicated to emergency management starts to uh, 
become more obvious. I think that there is a, a lot that is happening, you know, because this is not always transparent that we're uh, kind of the broader public is incredibly unaware of. And I, I think we don't necessarily have the infrastructure and resources to really be able to um, to really monitor what's happening and, and work to make changes. Samantha, let me ask you, if sort of staying with this um, set of issues around challenges that the pandemic has revealed for emergency management at all scales, let's talk about compound disasters um, a little bit. So, you know, emergency managers are, um, I'm always astounded at, at when I talk to them, they're planning for one thing, but in fact, they're planning for multiple things simultaneously. They're not planning for discrete types of events. Usually they're planning across sectors or sort of an all hazards mindset, if you will. That's the planning. But this pandemic has been a 50 state in all territories and global phenomena by definition. So you had every emergency operations center in America basically activated. And then we have wildfire season. Uh, we have hurricanes. We have seasonal flooding. I could go down the list on and on and on. I know you've been tracking this. So what has that looked like for emergency managers to try to see multiple intersecting disasters happening simultaneously? Yeah, um, well, I'll start with my caveat of we're still kind of waiting for research on this to come out. But um, from what I have kind of witnessed over the past year, I think that local emergency management agencies have actually been pretty incredible with uh, dealing with these other disasters that have happened during the pandemic. I mean, this is, they've been handed a lot <laughs> this past year, and many of those agencies have very few resources. Um, and, uh, you know, I know there's the constant conversations about burnout and exhaustion among emergency management uh, professionals across the country. And so I, I think kind of as just a, a major generalization, I think that they really have, um, done everything that is within their power to address these overarching issues. I think that ultimately what this comes down to, though, is a lack of local capacity in emergency management agencies. There is only so much that a local EM agency with one or two people can do to address, you know, a, a you know, multiple hurricanes in a pandemic with then a winter storm, right? It, it's a lot, right? And so um, I think that, you know, this has um, been a year of of hopefully us being able to recognize where uh, those um, you know those deficiencies are within local emergency management um, to think more about what we need to be doing to build that local capacity as we think about increasing risk and kind of the increasing possibility of more compounding disasters going into the future. Jeff, just to bring you in on that too, because you know the the hope is of, that we always, in the midst of a disaster, we're going to get back to normal as soon as possible. The pandemic temporality, though, is is a weird one. I mean, we're we're not even close to done with this. It's moved a little bit. It's not always leading, probably in every emergency management office around the country, but it's there as a constant. And maybe it's a bit of a preview. Um, of sort of 21st century disasters globally and in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I very much appreciate and want to echo Samantha's point as well, too, that, you know, people who 
who choose to respond to disasters, whether in emergency management and whether as a government employee or a contractor, you know, has my utmost respect. You know, a lot of these people, a lot of people feel a call to action and they take the mechanism that's available for them. And I think as we're imagining, you know, reimagining the interplay on how these things function best together, we do have to look at the 21st century, not the 20th century. Uh, if 2020 was not known for COVID-19, 2020 would be known as another year of record-breaking billion-dollar disasters. There is no normal anymore. Whatever we thought normal was, it doesn't exist anymore. We are in a constant state of multiple major recoveries. And the pandemic is another layer on top of that. Um, but you peel that away and you still have all those other layers. We still have people in Texas recovering from Harvey. We still have families in Puerto Rico, you know, recovering from Maria and the earthquake. So I, I think that, you know, again, it sort of requires this really holistic look. And what it means is that, you know, a, a lot of these things that were envisioned around logistics, around getting resources to people in need, um, have transformed into uh, case management, into social work, into access to healthcare and healthcare resources. And we really do start seeing the growth of emergency management into the very foundations of what makes civil society, civil society. Um, and so we have to think long and hard about where the boundaries of emergency management are, but they're much farther out um, than they were originally visioned um, a couple of decades ago. Let's talk a little bit more about that because um, anybody who listens to COVID calls for five minutes knows kind of where I stand on this, that treating disaster somehow separate from the processes that create vulnerability to hazards um, is, is the wrong way to go in my, in my view, but it does raise real problems of governance because they're, for government to work, you have to have sort of lines and definitions and for laws to come into effect, there are different agencies that, um, that work on different sorts of problems. Um, Having said that, you know, coming to this compound disaster issue, the racial justice crisis and the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States throughout last year and coming into this year speaks to this exact issue you're talking about, Jeff. And so if emergency management is going to be more engaged in healthcare provision, well, that's a racial justice issue in America. Yeah. And and I've, I've even heard, so the, the criticism of that, it opens up a criticism um, that emergency management it becomes almost an, either an extension of the public health office or of the police department. Where does it sit? It's, it's unclear to me where it should sit, but if it's going to be engaged in the daily lives of people, including the inequalities that they face, it has to be ready for that. It has to be ready for that criticism. I wonder what's the state of play within the field as you see it in terms of thinking about that, Jeff. So, yeah, I think that there's sort of two sides. One is that, you know, again, folks in the field in emergency management who I've had the privilege of working with, you know, they're doing everything they can to work with the resources that they have while recognizing that the boundaries of what they do and how to do it most effectively are extending further and further into the community. Um, and in many cases, they're outpacing the availability of resources and guidance coming from through federal grants and things like that, which isn't to say people aren't thinking about it, but things move slowly. Um, but again, to the to the earlier question of where does FEMA belong uh, uh, and, and this sort of stepping back to a bigger question on reimagining this. Uh, so there, there's kind of in, in academia and elsewhere, there's kind of, there, there's a couple of schools of thought on this. You know, the 100 Resilient Cities Initiative from the Rockefeller Foundation championed this idea of uh, chief resilience officers. Uh, and so you place someone at this like C-suite level within a, a municipal elected official in the mayor's office or something like that, mm -hmm. who's looking out across all the agencies and, and leading the effort. Um, you know, there are others who would say that, you know, this actually, the, the 
actions that actually accumulate into resilience are distributed. They don't exist centrally, which is why it's so hard for a central advisor to be able to control this across all the machinery of civil society. And so it really needs to be a value or, or a, a metric that's embedded in all of the different agencies. The reality is it's probably some sort of combination of both. It's probably something like how we have in our national security apparatus, a national security advisor, and then the, the agencies and the operations baked in them. Not that I'm saying that that's perfect. Um, but you bring up a key point, which is that, you know, we can't talk about reducing the cost of disasters if we don't bring the conversation into, um, are we going to price this into our economic development policies? Are we willing to experience slower growth for slower um, uh, deterioration after a disaster? Are we willing to have slower vaccine distribution if it means more equity in distribution? Um, right now, the answer, by failing to answer it, the data is clearly showing it's no. Um, but these are the things is that we have to be upfront about the costs and we do need some of the expertise in emergency management to be in the room to help inform those decisions when they're made rather than let them be made the same way on the same metrics and the same equations that they've been used on because those equations are obsolete. Samantha, just bringing you in on this and thinking about the workforce in emergency management, it's the Today, we're inheriting a tradition in which that has been dominated. It has a sort of long track record of military, um, you know, former military officials coming into emergency management at leadership levels. And then um, kind of out in the field, it's been pretty white, pretty male, um, and doesn't always look like the communities that now is being called in to try to sort out some of these and address some of these longstanding structural problems. Seems like an area for reform, but of course, how do you do that reform in the middle of a never-ending disaster? Yeah, look, I, I mean, it's not easy. I will say that I think this is one area where I feel a little bit hopeful about the future of emergency management in that, I, you know, we are starting to see some demographic shifts in terms of who is actually working in emergency management agencies, um, particularly in terms of the backgrounds of people coming in, uh, rather than coming in from military and first responder, we're seeing an increase in people coming in out of emergency management degree programs, um, you know, coming out of the nonprofit sector. We need more of that, of course, but I think, um, you know, there's evidence that we're moving in a better direction in that sense. Um, of course, representation is only going to do so much for you. Um, uh, you know, we have to have um, active representation for um, to you know to start seeing changes, and you know, we have to have these broader policy shifts as well in order for that to actually translate into the work that we're doing. Um, but you know, I, I mean, I, I think it is a positive sign that we are hearing much more consistently concerns about equity that that is coming up in, uh, you know, congressional hearings, it's coming up, um, you know, regularly, not only from emergency managers themselves, but also, um, you know, within emergency management research, it's coming from senators when they're asking questions in congressional hearings, which, you know, I, I think that is relatively new in the past few years. Those haven't really been questions uh, from those places that we've heard much uh, about. So um, I think that's a positive sign. Obviously, there needs to be a massive culture shift within emergency management. And I, I think it's difficult um, 
to necessarily figure out how it, how exactly to do that um, outside of starting with that representative piece. Well, maybe part of that shift is um, indicated in the new administration with Deanne Criswell coming in as the administrator. Wouldn't she, I mean, she's the first woman who'd be the administrator of FEMA, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be a good starting point. <laughs> um, Jeff, anything you want to say to that? I mean, it's it, again, it's going to be um, a process of thinking not how do we address, well, it is going to be a process of how we address right now, but also how do we look um, at you know the next five to 10 years uh, in terms of developing new leadership for emergency management and as well, you know, if it is going to be able to take on, encompass all these many different functions to react to 21st century disasters, it's, the workforce is just going to have to be different in emergency management, I think. It's a different skill set. And anytime you're trying to uh, move an agency, I mean, we have the benefit in, in academia of looking at like broad sweeping changes. But of course, and I know, I, I know um, both of you also look, you know, very closely at, at individuals and sort of making the most of the systems uh, as they exist. And, and here we're talking about skills in organizational development. We're talking about skills in contract management. We're talking about skills in case management, uh, empathy, <laughs> um, and also uh, business administration. You know, if, if we're trying to talk to someone, what are the what is the math they're using in the transactions they're engaging in? Um, what are the barriers uh, of someone getting access to a program? Um, it, we're really good at describing inequity now. Um, too good at describing it. We can predict it now, which is a problem because we shouldn't be able to predict it since we can describe it so well. We should be changing the course mm. of that. Um, it is very, very exciting actually to see um, Deanne Criswell nominated. I've had the privilege of crossing paths with her a few times in her work in New York City. Um, and we, we also need leaders, elected officials and um, political appointees who are willing to make the investments in an agency that don't pay off until after they leave. Um, that's the kind of long game we need, which is hard to incentivize. Um, and and I, I do believe that that Deanne Criswell is the right choice. I, I look forward to, to seeing her confirmed by the Senate. Um, and we need more folks like that who, who really get the long game, who really see um, the kind of change that needs to be made and the kind of investment in staff and people. Again, we have tons of people on the front lines who are doing an amazing job with everything that they've been given whether they're contractors or government officials. And I think we just, we owe them more. Um, we should put the wind at their backs rather than um, at their fronts. Thank you both for those points. I mean, and it still strikes me, though, that austerity, it, you, maybe you shouldn't even call it austerity. It's just normalcy in emergency management, operating in, you know, cash starved uh, environment and then asking people to do. I mean, my colleague Jim Kendra has said this before. We ask emergency managers to deal with to pull people out of the tree, put them back together, bury their loved ones who've died. Uh, deal with their future traumas, and then also deal with structural racism and inequality in our economy were inherited over many decades previously. It's, in, it's an impossible set of tasks, um, and yet emergency management is there at that pinch point. So let's talk a little bit about reforms that you think might be on the table to help address um, this sort of real gap. Part of it's funding. So 
you know, what kind of reform can actually change the conversation and increase funding. We just were talking a little bit about changing um, who's in the room in emergency management and cultivating a more diverse leadership um, as we go forward. Um, Samantha, let me bring you in on this first. You said you weren't going to give us a checklist of emergency management reforms that you wanted to see, but I guess I'm sort of asking for it. Sure. So there's some kind of general things that I think are kind of um, more realistic reforms and potentially on the table for the next couple of years. So simplify all of the aid programs within FEMA, continue to increase funding to all of those programs and various grants like EMPG. Um, start actually addressing the inequality within FEMA programs, uh, continue or you know, increase the emphasis on, on mitigation across the country, of course. Uh, I, the Senate seems willing to talk about amending the Stafford Act, so maybe that's on the table. Um, just doing some really baseline integration of climate change into everything that FEMA and emergency management agencies across the country are doing. Um, is important, maybe some shoot for the stars reform, maybe potentially talk about taking FEMA out of DHS, or at least think about how we can elevate the importance of FEMA within the federal government. Uh, I think continue to kind of disentangle FEMA from DHS and, and the terrorism focus as, uh, as much as possible. Um, you know, just any funding possible for emergency management research to help really build a pipeline from higher ed programs, from nonprofits, um, you know, from frontline communities to bring the folks in those areas into emergency management um, and uh, just kind of across the board, more, you know, robust local emergency management agencies. I think, you know, all of those are, I kind of think almost the bare minimum, but also I don't I don't know how realistic a lot of them are, but that would be my starting point. I hope that Administrator Chriswell is listening to this. And Jeff, what would you add to Samantha's list or what would you underline that's on that list? Yeah, I mean, one I, I would definitely underline, you know, this this state and local investment, particularly local. You know, we like to talk a lot about, particularly in humanitarian aid capacity building. There's a tremendous capacity that already exists in communities if we just back them up. And oftentimes, a lot of these emergent organizations are the are they're not on the master contract list. They're not set up with telethons to be able to harvest the money, but they're the ones doing the work when they see a gap. Um, and so I think definitely investing in communities. And the other piece I would say is that, you know, the, the private sector uh, reaps the benefits of our uh, disaster resilience when it works and they absorb the costs when it doesn't. And they're also responsible for the vast majority of our preparedness response and recovery infrastructure. So uh, I know we've been talking a lot about government structures and the role of government in this, but I think ways to incentivize the private sector and if necessary to, to, to mandate it. But, um, but I think that there's plenty of incentive there if we start doing the math and there's a lot of data right now on, uh, on the cost of disasters, the cost of resilience, the opportunity costs of not being able to produce with changes in habits in response to disaster. Um, so I, th I think that there are some pretty big and powerful partnerships that have not been fully tapped. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Samantha Montano and Jeff Schlegel-Milch. We're almost out of time, but um, we just want to bring it back to the pandemic as we're closing out and talk a little bit about vaccination. Uh, Jeff, this is an area that you have some background in, and you gave an interview recently in which you were 
sort of drawing some historical parallels to lessons that may have been learned from the anthrax crisis back post 9-11 and the sort of preparedness for scale up of rapid um, medicine distribution and why some of those lessons maybe haven't been applied here. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's been interesting to see because in in the post 9-11 days, uh, of course, everything was about anthrax. And, you know, uh, we under the city's readiness initiative, you had to get antibiotics to the entire population of a city within 48 hours of the decision to do so. A couple of years later, we were worried about the bird flu. And so we had to take all those plans and then transition them to, um, you know, vaccination clinics. But, you know, I was part of a number of exercises, including doing time study data, which, you know, uh, sounds really fancy. It was essentially people with clipboards and stopwatches sort of tracking people through. And, you know, one really interesting thing is that, um, you know, when you reach a point where you have more than enough vaccine or more than enough antibiotic, which is the threshold we're approaching now nationally, it actually becomes a barrier to select certain groups over others, higher risk groups over others, um, or certain age groups over others. Every time you have to check something or verify something or validate something, it makes it that much harder Uh, It takes that much longer. It adds that much time to each transaction, which actually accumulates into thousands and thousands of people. Um, So it's been interesting to see how that's been managed by different states. But the other piece I would say is that there were all these plans, hundreds of millions of dollars, perhaps even billions of dollars put into these distribution plans. And a lot of governors threw them out or they gave no bid contracts to um, uh, to the private sector. Um, So in some ways, I think it's created great parallel streams to take advantage of existing supply chains, like giving vaccines to states and to national retail pharmacies. But in other cases, I think we, I think that there was a lot of planning that was done that didn't achieve its potential. So rather than an investment, it became a sunk cost. And I think we need to understand why. Why was that? Is it that the plans weren't viable in a, in a political situation? Is it that the political appointees didn't have the time or didn't get into it? Um, there's a really, there's, a, there's a, a, a many, many millions and potentially billions of reasons why uh, we need to understand that and um, uh, adjust our planning processes going forward. Just a, a quick follow-up, what might be the political pressures that governors are facing here to choose one sort of form of vaccine delivery and put the shoulder behind that versus others? I mean, again, the sort of setting of priorities um, is, a, yeah. is a real challenge here. You know, uh, my colleague uh, and founder of my center, Dr. Erwin Redliner, and I have had this conversation a lot on how uh, disaster planning is is in the realm of experts until it's not. And is it is it... Be- I don't know the answer. Um, Is it because it's so esoteric and it's become so uh, uh, specialized that any non-specialist can't digest it? And when time is of the essence, you say, fine, let me go with the simple answer that's being brought to me. Or is it because the elected officials and and key appointees aren't investing the time to get to know this? Um, The answer is probably a little bit of both. It's probably a little bit, um, there's, uh, but it it means that the way we plan can't just be about the hazard and the vulnerability. It also has to be about the politics. We have to integrate the uncertainty of the politics into our planning processes. And as impossible as it sounds, there are actually some ways uh, for doing that. We have an article coming out soon in the Journal of Disaster Medicine and Public Health Preparedness with some work with New York City talking about some mechanisms that we explored doing that. So, check it out. Oh, yeah, we'll stay tuned for that because you, as you articulated a minute ago, finding 
incentives um, for policymakers to make investments and put their neck out for tough policies, which they know that if they work out well, they're not going to get any credit for it because they won't be in office anymore, is a, a conundrum within the way that our, our system works and the way that the politics works. Can you give us just a, a teaser for that article, Jeff? Just oh, well, so the article itself was really we were looking at different ways of, of and actually integrating. So we took different measures like uh, from the business sector of managing uncertainty. And there's this great book by Michael Rayner called The Strategy Paradox it has nothing to do with disasters. I recommend everyone read. Um, and, and really, the strategy paradox is where you spoiler alert is where you have to make a commitment before you have enough information to do so. And the way you defeat it is to actually create options rather than make rigid commitments prematurely. So we kind of took that philosophy and integrated it into a couple of different, I like to call it a Frankenstein theoretical framework. Uh, but we took some public health uh, metrics, we took some performance management measures, and we sort of shoehorned in some of the um, some of this uh, approach for managing uncertainty. But the reality is, is that there actually are a lot of ways out there for managing uncertainty, for integrating that in. Um, but to, to your other point as well too, politicians and the incentive structure, you move fast, you get reelected. If you don't move fast, you don't get reelected. This is a very hardwired incentive structure. There's no incentive for preparedness electorally, at least not now, unless we start voting differently. It's all about speed. Um, and so we either need to change that incentive structure or we need to include that in our assumptions when we're developing plans that we're expecting other people to carry out. Samantha, we were just talking a little bit about vaccination. As you're looking ahead, I mean, wildfire season, hurricane season, I'm not sure those seasons make much sense anymore, but those, um, they're coming. The pandemic uh, is still with us. It's gonna be unevenly distributed across the country, um, just as we're seeing now and continue to be in the vaccine. I mean, on and on and on complications. Meanwhile, um, the United States is re-entering the global dialogue around climate change. The uh, COP meetings are gonna happen again. Um, you know, that's important. Uh, it's really inspiring to see the United States re-enter that. I know it's something you're tracking very closely, but it's another thing to put on the desk of emergency managers in the middle of this pandemic. So. I guess it's more of a comment than a question, but just sort of like, how are you thinking about all of those different things as we go into this next phase of the pandemic? Um, I don't know. I feel like we're in a little bit of a kind of transition period right now as, we, you know, we need to still stay focused on vaccination and, you know, getting through this. But also, um, I think attention is going to be very quickly diverted to hurricane season to these other issues as they come up. Um, and, you know, one thing that again, going back to that burnout that I think is pretty prevalent throughout emergency management right now, um, you know, figuring out a strategy for how to give people a, a little bit of a break so that they can come back and kind of deal with the next crisis and, and hopefully, you know, try to uh, address some of these underlying causes as, uh, as the opportunities present themselves. Well, I know you've mentioned at various different points, Samantha, that the Research needs to catch up now. I'm not sure there's ever, the world doesn't stop for emergency management researchers to catch up. Uh, and I know from your Twitter feed that you occasionally have to stop your world and immerse yourself in emergency management research. But just, just like I asked Jeff, like what's the first question you're picking up as a researcher? 
Um, well, I'm working with a team of researchers now on uh, this issue of local capacity within emergency management agencies specifically, um, considering, you know, kind of their experiences during the pandemic, but also looking ahead to what this means for climate change and increasing risk across the country. So that's top of my priority list right now in terms of research. Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Please do join my discussion tomorrow. It'll be a continuation of my LePage Center discussions, and we'll actually be talking with um, a couple of different researchers who are working on Mennonite and Anabaptist history and oral history and how religious communities have been dealing with the pandemic. And then at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time tomorrow, please do mark your calendar. I'll be talking to Alex Goldstein, the founder of Faces of COVID. Faces of COVID is just today, I think, passing its one-year anniversary. And if you're not familiar with that project, please do check it out on Twitter. And I definitely want to thank my guests today, Samantha Montano and Jeff Schlegelmilch, for joining me on this 250th episode of COVID Calls and for just engaging in what was an enlightening conversation for me and for, I'm sure, many others. Thanks to both of you. Thanks my for pleasure. having us. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. <laughs>